So as we get into the word this morning, go to the book of James, the book of James. And as you're going to the book of James, uh, I'll just open us in prayer here. Lord, thank you uh, just that we can worship your name. Lord, we, uh, it's so good to be with fellow believers uh, singing praises about how good you are, Lord, singing the truth about you, Lord. Uh, so Lord, just we want your kingdom to come here. Uh, we want to have kingdom minds this morning, Lord, as we uh, have fellowship with each other. So just bless this time and uh, bless this word this morning. Amen. Amen. So James chapter 2, we uh, finished up James chapter 1 last week. We're into James 2 this week, and let's get right into it. In verse 1, it says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So just stop right there. And let's just look at that for a second. What a great name for Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. What does that even mean, though, right? That's one of those Christianese words. You go, oh, yeah, the Lord of glory. Cool. Well, the dictionary definition for the word glory is high renown, magnificence, or, or great beauty. Jesus Christ, the Lord of honor, magnificence, and great beauty. What a great name for Jesus. And, you know, I love the term the Bible Project guys use. If you ever listen to any of the Bible Project guys podcasts or anything, um, they use this term hyperlink. And they say, you know, they see, when you see references like this, they say, there's hyperlinks to verses and references in, in other parts of the Old Testament. You guys know what the word hyperlink is if you go on a computer ever? A hyperlink is like maybe you're on Wikipedia and, and there's a word and there's a little, maybe a little subscript number at the top that you can click on that'll link you to another, another page or another word. It'll reference something else. And so and so the New Testament is full of hyperlinks, full of hyperlinks to Old Testament things. And, and we just miss it as being white Canadians in the year 2020. There's just stuff going on that we don't get, whether it's language or we just don't have good knowledge of the Old Testament like they did back then. And so this, this word glory, when you see the word glory for a, a Jewish person of this time, in, in James's time, they would have been a glaring hyperlink would have popped up for them. And that hyperlink would have reminded them of the idea of the Shekinah glory. And in Exodus 25, God says, And they shall make before me a sanctuary, a sanctuary, and I shall cause my Shekinah to dwell among them. The Shekinah glory is the visible manifestation of God's presence. For the Israelite people, hearing the word, the Lord of glory, they would automatically hyperlink that to the idea of the Shekinah glory. So let's read verse 1 again here. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the visible manifestation of God's presence. It's what they would automatically hyperlink that to and kind of replace that. And so today, as people, I mean, we're in the New Testament It'll hyperlink us to the book of John as well. And in John 1.14, it says, The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. So the word became flesh and it tabernacled. It dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. What a great name for our Savior. The Lord of glory. Jesus Christ, the visible manifestation of God's presence, the Lord of glory. 
That was just a side tangent for you. I just thought, what a great name for Jesus, the Lord of glory, the visible manifestation of God. Let's keep going here in verse 2. It says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And so let's think about the things going on in James's time while he was writing this letter. I know I talk about this a lot, but the culture of James's day was quite a bit different than ours. But if you look a little closer, it's actually a lot similar to ours. Today, we live in a time where we tell people, we tell kids, we, we raise people think, telling them, you can change the world. You can affect change. If you really put your mind to something, then you can get better and, and you can be a difference maker in this world. It's whether you're talking social status, political status, economic status. You know, in general, we live in this democratic, democratic world of North America where you can come here and live the American dream, right? We tell people that you can live the American dream. And in our society today in Canada, we, we generally have, you know, pretty good social support. There's homeless shelters, there's food banks, there's, there's low-income support, there's universal medical, we have minimum wage laws. You know, we generally have a society that has a tendency to support the less fortunate. Uh, and, now, and now, I'm not saying that we're perfect by any means, don't think that this is great, and, and I think we have a long way to go. And some of you might think, Blake, you're an idiot, we're way too far supporting people. The government's just pulling the fleece over your eyes. Do you think you can change anything? But I think we can all agree, right, that in general, we live in a society where, like I said, you can live the American dream. We tell people, you come here, you work hard, you can, you can make change. But in James's time, everything I just said was not even a thought in their brain. There was no possibility to affect change. Unless you were in like the literal top 1% of the government, you had zero input on anything. They didn't want your vote. They didn't have meaningful dialogue. They didn't have debates. They didn't have Facebook for you to go rant on and share your opinion. The more you kept your mouth shut, the better. There was no social support for poor people or sick people. There was just huge amounts of discrimination based on race or, or gender or your economic status. If you weren't wealthy, you really couldn't do anything. And you knew, you knew that you couldn't do anything. You know, it was even so far that the, in the Roman Empire, you actually, if you were poor, you couldn't even bring a lawsuit against rich people. And if you were poor, you actually had harsher punishments dealt out upon you when you got in trouble probably because you couldn't pay off the judges, but I don't know. In general, in this time, during James', James time, if you weren't a rich Roman male, you had no hope of doing anything. You were no good. You were no good to anyone. And, and in this time, that's one of the big reasons, actually, that Jesus was causing such, a, such an uproar in this time, because Jesus led a radical revolution of breaking down barriers between those who called themselves Christians. The church became a radical place where two different people would sit next to each other and worship the same God. It was just insane. It was unheard of. It was radical. You know, Jesus preached that in the kingdom there is neither Jew nor Gentile nor rich nor poor nor man nor woman, 
We're all members of the same body under Jesus Christ. But, but here's the thing that was happening. As people were coming to the church, they would start showing partiality to the rich people. And it, it's, I get it a little bit, because imagine living in that time, right, where if you're not rich, you're nothing. And so, so you've been raised your whole life on this idea that, well, you've got to be good to the rich people, because maybe if you're nice to them, they'll help you out, they'll throw you a coin here or there, maybe you'll become friends with them and you can get some, some way to affect change or something. And that's the only way. That was really the only way. And so as I, as I read this and thought about this, it reminded me of being a young boy. I still am a young boy. What am I saying? A young boy up at uh, Calvary Baptist. And uh, we went to Calvary Baptist. My family went to Calvary Baptist for a long time when I was younger. And I remember, I remember sitting in the chairs there. And at Calvary Baptist, you come in and you shake your hands with the nice older people, and then if you're there before 10, which a lot of you don't know about, but you can show up before church starts, if you're there before 10, which is when church started, you just walk in and find your seat like normal. But if you're there after 10, they were very particular in not wanting you to disrupt people, because we had nice long pews. A lot of us probably forget even what this church looked like, right? We had nice long chairs set up, and, and they didn't want you distracting people as you went to find your... As your you know, group of 20 comes in at 10:15, trying to find a seat for all 20 of you to sit together. So what they do at Calvary Baptist is they have these guys, the two ushers, these older guys, and man, God bless them because they took their job so seriously and it was so good. And it's good, but they would like, they would like army crawl almost up and down the pews, trying not to distract people. And then like a gopher, their head would pop up and they'd be like, Four. We can fit four, four here, six over there. It was just the most distracting thing in the way. It almost made it worse, but it was so good because they were just so committed to not distracting, and it was awesome. And I love it when people are that committed to something that, to me, I'm like, who cares? But it's good. They took their job seriously, and they did it, and I just remember laughing so hard sitting there, and it was just so good. And, and so I can just imagine the scene here, right, in James's day, a man walks in with, with gold rings on his fingers and, and he's got fine clothing on and maybe he just had the valet out front, put his donkey around the corner, right? And, and the, ushers, the ushers there, they would move heaven and earth. They would move the whole world to get these people a good seat in front. They would say, can I fluff your pillow? Would you like some coffee? I don't know what they drank back then, but would you like some water? What can I do for you? Here, come sit up here. You sit in the front row the splash zone. This is the best seat. But then when a poor man would walk in, the ushers would be like, mm, uh, uh, sorry, no room for you, sir. No room for you. Uh, just go sit at the back. I think there's a seat at the back there. Or I, I think there's a seat in the nursery with the crying babies. That's the place for you. And so the issue here that James is telling us isn't the fact that you were showing overwhelming kindness to the rich man. The issue was that you were showing partiality. You aren't showing the same kindness to everyone. And, and that you're becoming the judge with evil thoughts. And so James goes on to show us why our thoughts are evil when we judge. I think I have a little slide. The first reason why our thoughts are evil when we judge is that we don't have proper spiritual thought. Let's look at verse 5. It says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? When we show partiality in our judgments, we are dishonoring the one that God honors. 
1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now let's be clear here. This is not saying that God only chose the poor. Don't be confused by that. But there does seem to be a sense here that God put special favor upon the poor people. In Luke 4, Jesus walks into a synagogue in Nazareth and he got up and he grabbed a scroll and he said, this is what this scroll says. In, in verse 17 of Luke 4, I don't think it's on the screen, so you just have to listen. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. And it said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he dropped the mic and he said, today this has been fulfilled in your presence. Or later on in Luke 6, verse 20 and 21, the word of God says, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. You see, when you make distinctions amongst yourself between rich and poor, you aren't using proper spiritual thought. But even more than that, not only are you not using proper spiritual thought, James goes on to tell us you aren't even using proper worldly thought. Let's look at verse 6 of James chapter 2. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? You see, you don't even have proper judgment when it comes to the things just plainly right in front of you either. You fail to see that these rich men that come in here are just fleecing you for all that is you have, and yet you still bend over backwards to cater to their every needs. It, it just doesn't make sense. And then they go ahead and blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. And so James goes on in verse 8 and 9. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So James jumps ahead of the curve here, and he's, he's thinking to himself, well, some people might say, but James, but James, I'm just trying to fulfill the law, the law that says to love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, it just so happens it's the rich man. It, the rich man needs to be loved. I can't help it. I can't help it. I'm just showing him all the love I have. I just want to help people. But again, James stresses here, the issue is not that you're loving the rich person. It's the fact that you're showing partiality and you're making the, the, the decision on who to love. You're making the decision to show love to the rich man and neglecting to show love to the poor man. It isn't the law that's the issue here. It's you that's the issue. And so James, verse 10 and 11, James keeps on pressing here. Let's keep going. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a trans transgressor of the law. So what? So what, right? You, you keep that one law. God's, God who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. And so you do one, but you don't do the other. Well, guess what? 
You've transgressed the law, and now you're guilty of it all. And so, do you guys remember what we talked about last week? Where does sin lead to? Where does sin lead you? Death. Sin leads you to death. If one law is broken, then you're guilty of it all. That's a bit of a scary thought, isn't it? But when I read this here, it's a scary thought, but it also makes me think how thankful I am for our Savior, right? Jesus, my Savior, the Lord of glory. God who knew, he knew I couldn't keep all the laws. He knew if I transgress one law, I'm guilty of it all. If I sin, that leads to death. But God sent his own son to die in my place. He sent his own son to be beaten and scorned and hung on a cross for me. When I should have been on that cross, God sent him for me. God sent his own son to give up his life for me so that I may have life. What a great savior our Jesus is, amen? Sin tried to sentence me, but Christ came and covered for me. Man, what a great savior our Jesus is. So what are we to do now? Now that we've been called, we've been called judges with evil thoughts, we've dishonored the poor man, we've been told that if you break one law, you're guilty of them all, and that judgment leads us to death. But we know we have a savior. So verse 12 says, speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Because of Jesus and his saving work, we have liberty. We're no longer condemned under the Old Testament law because of the saving work of Jesus. However, we will be judged at the end of the days. Just so you know, if you think you're going to get out of judgment, you're not. But you're not going to be judged based on whether you have salvation or not. You're going to be judged uh, based on your actions here for rewards. 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us about that. And our life will be judged based on the royal law. Royal because our King Jesus handed it down. So speak and act as those judged under the law of liberty. You see, under the law of Moses, you were required by law to love your neighbor. And if you failed, you were condemned. But under the law of liberty, you're given grace and you love your neighbor not out of fear in order to be saved, but rather out of love for Jesus and faith because you are saved. Jesus first loved you, so you love others. And the judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Now, you're all in church right now, and even if you're watching on TV, it still counts. So you're not allowed to lie right now. That's the universal rule that we all know. And I know you all do this, so don't lie. If you're like me, you're driving to Seashelt, and the knucklehead in front of you is going 60 kilometers an hour. We all know this. It's just classic. That happened this morning, Ken saying. Knuckleheads, eh? Just makes you furious. We all know this. It's just a classic Gibson Seashelt understanding. Your speed limit's 80, you're going 60, and you just, come on. You're just fired up. You get fired up. I got places to be. I got to get to the mall. I don't know. Like, where do you have to go that badly on the coast? I don't know. But you're fired up. You're fired up. And so maybe you get into Seashell and you go grab a coffee at McDonald's or Tim Hortons and make a quick pit stop. And then you're coming to come back on the highway and you don't see anyone. So you go and, oh, cut someone off. You cut someone off. Whoops. Ah, it's okay. My bad, right? Ah, it's my bad. Oh, no big deal. 
Matthew 7, 2 says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Friends, be careful how you measure out mercy. I love to measure out mercy with a teaspoon when that guy in front of me is going 60, and when I cut someone off, I expect mercy by the dump truck load. With the same measure of judgment you dole out, so it will be measured back to you. And so that takes us halfway through uh, James chapter 2 here. And in the second half, uh, this is where things get a little controversial, maybe. You know, I told you guys at the beginning of all James here, Martin Luther called the epistle of James an epistle of straw. And I like to think that this bit that we're coming up to here might have been a little bit what he had in mind when he said that. See, the last half of, of James chapter 2 that we're about to get into here is some of the more controversial passages, actually in, in a lot of the New Testament. There's whole divisions of theology have used this bit of James chapter 2 uh, to prove their idea on the theory that by works we're saved, or to prove the idea, the idea that it's a combination of faith and works, or you know, it's how much karma we get in this life, or, or some people actually even go as far as to just disregard James. They say James shouldn't have been in the canon of the Bible. This isn't, this, this isn't right. This isn't supposed to be in here. Because it, it, they say it completely goes against what other parts of the Bible say. And even more specifically, uh, they would say it goes against uh, what Paul would preach specifically. What Paul preaches clearly. Uh, you'll see Paul preaches clearly on the understanding that you are saved by grace through faith. It's not by your works. And so this gives a bit of an issue, right, to us as readers, as, as people who are reading the Bible. We go, well, what do we do? What do we do with this then? But let me just tell you, as a Bible teacher, uh, as a Bible reader, uh, as someone who puts their hope in the saving work of Jesus Christ, it's, it's my job and it's your job to believe God's word when it says all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. James told us to receive the word with meekness that is able to save souls. And so when a passage comes up that just doesn't seem right, seems something seems wrong, you know, when you're looking in the mirror of God's law and you see a spot and it just doesn't sit well with you, what needs to change? You or the word of God? And so as we come to the second half of James chapter 2, it almost, feels like, it almost feels like chapter 1 and the first bit of chapter 2 has been leading up to this point. This is like the, whoop, we're up, going up the hill. And so let's read it here, verse 14 to 17. It says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But Blake, you might be sitting there saying, you, you might be sitting there, I remember when you taught in the book of Ephesians. Oh, oh good, good work. Good job, good listening. And you might be sitting there saying, I remember listening to every word you were saying, and I remember in Ephesians 2, oh, I don't know, let's say Ephesians 2, uh, verse 8 and 9. I remember when you read that, and, and Paul said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so this seems like it's directly contradicting what James just said here, right? What's the deal? Well, first of all, remember, remember this, when we go to the word of God, we, we, we go to the word of God uh, believing that it was divinely given to man through the Holy Spirit and that all scripture is God-breathed. So we're to work out how these two ideas complement each other, not how one's right and one's wrong. And so let's be clear here, just as we get into this, by no means is James telling us that we are saved by works. Rather, he is telling us what a saving faith looks like. A famous saying goes like this that I read. I don't remember where I read it. Sometime this week I read it, so sorry if I'm not crediting whoever did it, but it said, faith alone saves but the faith that saves is not alone. And when we look at some of Paul's other letters, we actually see that he agrees, he would agree with this statement. So we just read Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, that very clearly said, you're saved by grace through faith, not by works. But listen to what it says in the immediate next verse, verse 10. It, Paul says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or in Paul's letter to Titus, uh, in, in Titus 3.8, it says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Are you saved by works? No, not at all. You are not saved by works. You are saved by grace through faith. However, true saving faith will have works that accompany it. And so for the rest of this passage, James outlines for us two different types of faith that you can have. One of these is true saving faith, and the other is not. And I'll let you have two guesses at which one is which. We've got dead faith, we've got living faith. And so we've already got a sneak peek at what dead faith looks like. Uh, let's read verse 15 and 16 again. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the, th the things needed for the body, what good is that? <laughs> I, just love, oh, I just imagine someone coming in. and I don't know why I find this so funny, but they just come in poorly clothed, hungry. We're all sitting here. They don't have the most basic human necessities in life. And we just say, go, be warm, eat, eat, many blessings, many blessings. And we just shepherd them out the door. You're like, what, like, what even is that? Like, it's just, it just doesn't make any sense. 1 John 3, 17, 18 says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. Dead faith is seeing a need and yet not demonstrating the need. Think of the story of the Good Samaritan. We all know the Good Samaritan, a man's beaten, you know, beaten up, taking all his clothes. He's just about dead, laying on the side of the road. And, and a, a priest walks by and he takes a look and goes, uh-uh, and walks to the other side of the road and keeps going. And then a Levite, a Levite walks by and goes, nah, walks to the other side of the road and, and walks right on by. They don't want to walk near him. But let me ask you a question. Do you think these two men, a priest and a Levite, would defend their faith till kingdom come? Yet they couldn't demonstrate it. They couldn't even demonstrate it. It was just purely intellectual. 
Verse 18 says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. I can't see your faith, but I can see your works. The reality of your faith is demonstrated by your works. James says, look at the demons. Oh, good on you. High five. Great work. You believe in God. Cool. You believe God's powerful. You believe that the God of Israel is the one true only God. That's great. Well, guess what? How about this for you? Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. The demons believe and they have a physical reaction to the name of Jesus Christ. The, the, the emotion at the, just at the name of Jesus Christ is so powerful, it causes the demons to have a physical reaction, which is more that I can say about your dead faith, which is merely intellectual, big-brained, and you can't even lift a finger to help one of God's honored people whom Christ died for. Faith that is barren and dead and without works is not a saving faith. I heard a, I heard a quote that said like this, no man, can come to, no man can come to Christ by faith and remain the same any more than a man can come in contact with a 120-volt wire and remain the same. And boy, ain't that the truth. If you've never been shocked before, that changes a man. <laughs> I remember... In my eight years of a plumber, the one time I've been shocked, and that was about seven years ago, and I've never had it happen again, because I can tell you down to the fine details of laying down on that person's kitchen floor underneath their dishwasher thinking the wire was off. I, I remember the, the crumbs on the, I think they had meatloaf for dinner the night before. It was so vivid in my brain, I can remember the, the wood flooring as I went and I touched that wire, and I had 120 volts surge through me. No man remains the same after they've been shocked. No man remains the same when they have true saving faith in Jesus Christ, and they realize what he's done for them. The reality of your faith is demonstrated by your works. So let's look at what living faith is. James gives us a couple of examples, Abraham and Rahab. So let's look at Abraham first. Verse 21, Was not Abraham our father? justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So James gives us two examples. He's going to give us two examples. First, Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, and then he gives us Rahab, the complete opposite, a Gentile harlot. Two very different people, but two people whose faith was made perfect by their actions. And Abraham here, the first one that, that James talks about, is a great example. He's an awesome example because Abraham was counted as righteous long before, long before the events of Isaac ever happened, long before even Isaac was even thought about. And so it's, it's confusing. It's a great example because it's like, well, this is confusing. You just said it seems like the works have nothing to do with the faith then and the being righteous. So what makes, what's going on here? 
So let's look quickly. In Genesis 15, 6, it says, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Years before Isaac was born, years before uh, Abraham was told to take his son Isaac and bind him and, and put the knife above him and plunge it into him, years before all that happened, Abraham trusted in the Lord and he was justified by faith. He was justified by, before God in his faith to God and then in obedience, his faith was made perfect. True faith and works are inseparable. The first produces the second, and the second proves the first. Did you get that? True faith and works are inseparable. The first true faith produces works, and works prove your true faith. Let's look at Rahab here. Verse 25, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? So Rahab, if you remember Rahab, Matt's been going through the book of Joshua um, that we've been going through on our regularly scheduled Sunday program. And so if you remember Rahab, she was a Gentile harlot. She was living in Jericho. Uh, and the spies of Israel came to take a look and just do spy things. And, and, and when she saw them, when Rahab saw them, she, she recognized them. She recognized them as followers of the God of Israel and she hid them and helped them escape when, when Jericho guards came to get them. And just think of that. Think of how enormous that faith is. Think of how little intellect and, and knowledge of the law that Rahab had. She was a Gentile harlot living in Jericho. Do you think she had the book of her law on her lips? It's not a chance. Do you think she had the book of the law memorized and and, and all, there's just not a chance that she knew all that. There's not a chance that her book knowledge was anywhere close. But when the time came to act, Rahab was able to confess that the God of Israel was the one true God, and more than that, she had the works to accompany it. Don't be discouraged because you think, well, I've only been a Christian for two weeks or or I've never been to Bible college and I have little faith. Don't be discouraged. All you have to do is be hearers of the word and be doers of the word. Verse 26 says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. How do we know a body is alive? Well, it's moving, it's breathing, it's blinking. Some of you are still blinking has actions. And so how do we know faith is alive? Well, it's moving, it's breathing, it has actions. Matthew 7, 15 to 20 says, I think it's going to come up on the screen, it says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. We recognize people by their fruit. I can't look at a tree and see the life force surging through it. In the same way, I can't look at you and see your faith surging through you. 
but I can see if a tree is dead or alive based on the the fruit that it's bearing. Friends, don't let your faith be a dead faith. Don't keep your faith bottled up inside. Be hearers of the word and be doers of the word. Living, saving faith is faith with action tied to its hip. Amen?